Good morning and welcome to New City Church. Uh, my name is Mike McAuliffe and I am a member here at New City Church. I'm going to ask you to stand up as we read the scripture this morning, okay? So this comes from Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the, the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all, with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, uh, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again in second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, uh, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask Simon, whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the, the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius is a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So uh, he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and they and some of them brothers uh, from Joppa and accompanied him. And on the following day, they, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and Cornelius your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded for. The word of the Lord. Amen. I was just thinking, as Mike was reading the word, just what an honor and a privilege it is to be called sons of God. 
Like as I read and I hear the passage about Peter being confronted with the fact that, that he didn't really believe that the Gentiles were worthy of the gospel, and that kind of he's confronted with that reality. That that's the reality that we all have when we approach God is that we really don't deserve to be called sons and daughters of God. And it's such an honor and a privilege to be called God's sons and his daughters. Here's another reality about this passage, and I've read lots of commentators on this. While we want to think that this is solely about uh, a Gentile man's salvation, there are things at play in this passage that are going to make us uncomfortable. Because, uh, you know, in our country and in our world, there's a lot of racial tension. There's a lot of injustice that the media is spinning one way. And, and, uh, and that really is a reality for all of us as we address this and live in the United States of America. And so here's my hope for where we're going today. I, I don't want to hit the gas pedal in the wrong places, right? I want God to guide this thing. But as we look at this, here's my hope uh, for where we're going today is that one, you'd be comforted. You'd be comforted by the fact that uh, because the Holy Spirit is with us, we are God's sons and daughters. And that is the greatest privilege in all of the world. My second uh, hope for us today is that uh, by God's grace, we would be convicted. We'd be convicted uh, for those people in our lives that are like our Cornelius's or the things in our life that might be dropped down in that sheet in front of us that we think can't go together. And my third hope is that we'd be filled with courage by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk into the middle of the mess with the confidence that God can make, uh, it can reconcile us to Himself and can reconcile us to one another as His sons and daughters. So everybody get it? You got it. So that's good. Let's go for it this morning. Um, so as we, look at, as we look at this passage, really that's about the Gospel going forward to the Gentiles, we look at this man Cornelius uh, I want to just say something about race before we go forward. And this isn't on the screen. I decided to put this in this morning. I'm going to turn to Acts 17 uh, and look at Paul's address um, uh, to, the, to the Areopagus in Acts 17 when he, when he preaches to them and what he says about race and about origin and all those types of things. And in Acts 17.26, uh, Paul says this, "...and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live." on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He is actually not far from each of us. So, so what is Paul saying here? That every single image bearer on the face of the earth, regardless of where you're from, what language you speak, uh, what color your skin is, what, what shape your eyes are, you all have the same origin in Adam. We are all descendants of Adam. Um, now, that's, uh, that's good news in some respects, and that's really bad news in some respects, because what's happened when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, all of their sin was imputed to us. And so we became sinners before we were ever born. The second birth that we are privileged to have is in Jesus. So if you're in Christ Jesus, uh, that the origin of our nature is now His righteousness and not our sinfulness. And so there is a way forward. So we don't have to find our identity and our distinctiveness 
and our differences. We can find our identity in Jesus. And, and friends, that's what gospel privilege is. There's a lot of talk today about white privilege. There's a lot of talk today about uh, privilege for the rich. There's a lot of talk today about lots of different privileges. But the greatest privilege of all that transcends every other privilege is gospel privilege. Amen. It is. It is, it is the greatest privilege that we could ever have to be called sons and daughters of God. Now, and if we're honest, we don't see all people this way. For instance, we are going to be drawn toward people who live and look like us. And whether we know it or not, we are going to have biases against people who live and look differently to us. This is exactly where Peter found himself in Acts chapter 10. You've got to think, Peter uh, had been down a long road with Jesus. I mean, he had the whole thing where he said, look, Jesus, even if all fall away, I will not. And then he denies Jesus three times before the rooster crows. And Jesus restores him on that beach on the shore of Galilee. And now, here's what we see is that Jesus and Peter are having another go-round. Did you know that we're not complete? When we, when we come to Christ, there's still a lot of work God wants to do in us. And we see that evidenced in the life of Peter. He's an apostle for goodness sakes. And there's still so much work that God wants to do in him. So I want to unpack a couple words that I'm using uh, today. The first one is this, privilege. That's a loaded word, right? Uh, and and here's, here's why I want to use it. It's because this is actually what's happening in this text here. Peter is a privileged man. He, he has a special advantage uh, that's given particularly to him. He's, he's God's son. And God wants to use him to take the Gospel to people that are not yet his sons and daughters. There's a, a privilege there. Peter has the ability to see the world from a different point of view than those that are not yet followers of Jesus. There's a privilege associated with that. There's a stewardship that he's responsible for because he knows that. Now, privilege isn't a bad thing. It's just a thing, okay? You can't help it. You just have it. He, so so it, what's it look like to steward this privilege? I'm, I'm reminded of a conversation that I had uh, probably about six months ago with the Kenyan man in Lawrenceville. We, our missional community had went to, to help serve with Fellowship of Christian Athletes in downtown Lawrenceville. And part of what we were doing was connecting with parents that had their kids uh, enrolled in a soccer program in downtown Lawrenceville. And so one of the conversations that I had was with this Kenyan man, and he said, yeah, I've lived here six years. And he was telling me about life in Kenya. And he said, you know, you know why Kenyans are so fast, don't you? He says, because they have to run to school. Like literally, they have to run to school, they have to run back for lunch, they have to run back to school, then they have to run back home. And this is miles and miles and miles. And he talked about the different altitudes and, and how that enabled them to be faster runners and things like that. And he said, when I got to the United States and we moved to Atlanta, he said, on the first day of school, this school bus came up to my front door and picked up my children. And, and he said, that that was surprising to him. He, he didn't think that that would be something that, that would be afforded to he and his family. And he said that afternoon, something even more amazing happened. The school bus came back and dropped my kids off at my front door. And he said, I just stood there and I wept. Because it was such a privilege to be afforded this education, a Gwinnett County Public School education, and to have the school bus pick my children up and drop them off because I'd never seen this before in my life. 
And I, I'm thinking inside, you know, I, I know all the things that happened to me on the school bus as a child. I want, to keep my, I want to keep my kids away from that. I'm thinking, I want to keep my kids as far as I can away from the school bus and all the things that happened there. And there he's seeing it as this privilege that's been afforded to him. Most of the time, we can't see the privileges that we have. We can't see them. We just have them. But God says, as a child of God, we have to steward the privilege that we know God. That we have the opportunity to know Him without a mediator. We get to know Him directly. We get to know Jesus directly. We get to pray to Him directly. That is a privilege to be stewarded. Prejudice, another uh, very divisive word that I think we need to use today. It's a preconceived opinion that produces bias. Now we all have bias whether we want to acknowledge that or not. Some of you... Uh, prefer Zaxby's over Chick-fil-A. Now, you know, is that a sin? I don't know. Some people would say that's a sin. I don't think that's a sin. Others of you, you prefer Alabama football to UGA. Now, the UGA fans say, hey, I know that's a sin. You know, we're just 45 minutes away from Athens, so you got to be a fan here. But Alabama fans, I mean, they're like, they're just everywhere, aren't they? I mean, you just can't help but find them. They're just everywhere. So, we all, have, we all have biases. And Peter was in this place where he had a bias against certain types of people. Now, as you read the Scriptures, what you notice about the relationships of Jews and Gentiles is that yes, God did have a, a special people. The Israelites. The descendants of Abraham that would be His chosen people. But the, the way that Jews adopted uh, and chose to wear that chosenness from God became sinful over time because you know what they did? Is God laid this foundation that said, you're my, you're my sons and my, and my daughters if you believe uh, in Me and your descendants of Abraham. Basically what began to happen is on top of that truth, they began to build these self-righteous traditions that isolated them further and further from the world to the point where Peter, uh, when, he goes into, um, when he goes into Cornelius' house, he says, hey look, you know that it's unlawful for me to be in your house. It wasn't unlawful for him to be in his house. That was tradition that was built on top of the truth of God's Word. God has always had a heart for the Gentiles, for the alien, for the sojourner. I mean, for goodness sakes, Rahab is in the genealogy of Jesus. Not just a Gentile, a prostitute Gentile. God has always had a heart for the world. Peter had built these, these the, not, not just Peter, the Jewish people had built these traditions on top of the truth of God's Word to further isolate them from the world. And it was really just this self-righteous attempt to, to, to pursue God, but also isolate themselves from the world, which really wasn't God's heart if we're honest, because God's always had a heart for the world. And why, is this, why was this sinful for, P, for Peter? Because... He diminished the image of God in other people who didn't live and look like Him. That's the problem with this isolation that had happened in the Jewish community. That God is the one that ascribes worth. And all men, according to Acts 17, are created in God's image. And we all have, we're all descendants of the same family. Regardless of our skin color, regardless of where we grew up, regardless of even what religion we are, we, we image God, whether we want to acknowledge that in a redeemed way or not. So this was what was going on. This is how I want to set this up as we dig into Acts 
10 today. So let's look at this. Let's look at Acts 10 and kind of dig in for a few minutes, and then I'm going to go back and talk about what it means to steward this gospel privilege that God's given us. Let's look at Acts chapter 10, verse 1. So what we notice here is that, that uh, Cornelius is in Caesarea, Peter is in Joppa. They're about 33 miles apart. Now when, when, we, when we read about Caesarea, you know, maybe you don't think much about that word. But I've been to Caesarea. And I want to tell you a little bit about the culture of Caesarea. Caesarea, uh, 33 miles up the road, it was basically Rome East in Israel. Everything that, that every structure that they built was to remind them of Roman culture. Let me just show you a few of the images of the existing structures over 2,000 years old here. So this, this first structure right here, this is the Hippodrome. This is right on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. This is where they would have horse races. Because in, in Roman culture, it was, it was really about sport and game, and they, they really liked to enjoy themselves. Let's move on to the next picture. This is the aqueduct. Guys, this is amazing technology. 2,000 years ago, people had running water on the second story of their house. Think about that. So this aqueduct would run, and it was, it was pitched in such a way where water could go all the way down into the city of Caesarea. Next, this is the theater. This theater held thousands of people. And, and this is where the plays and the acting would happen right there. And then, uh, just to give you even a better picture of, of uh, uh, the culture in Caesarea, th this room right here is, uh, it doesn't look like much. It's right on the back side of, uh, of the theater in Caesarea. This is called the vomitorium. Now, a part of Roman culture is, is indulgence in excess uh, and, and really the pursuit of pleasure. It's called hedonism at all costs. So part of the culture was to indulge yourself to the point of excess. And this is the place where they would go and toss their cookies so they could continue to indulge themselves. This is a part of the culture. So you can see the resistance that Peter would have in going to Caesarea. God, I don't want to go to Caesarea. The people that are in Caesarea are pretty much all Romans that have come to Israel. And that Roman culture, it describes everything that doesn't describe me. And I don't, I don't want to go there. And, and honestly, in his heart, he probably thought, hey, these guys aren't worth it. They're, they're less than because they don't take you seriously the way that I do, God. Next, we see in Acts 10, 1-8, a, a guy that comes on the scene by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius is a, is a pretty good dude. He's a God-fearing man. So what does it mean to be a God-fearer? Well, in this culture, it meant that he would go to the synagogue and he would worship God. He would go, he would go and, and worship God. He would, um, he would, he would pay uh, his, his tithes and his offerings. And he would, he, would, uh, <clears throat> he would basically do everything except be circumcised and follow the kosher uh, dietary laws. He would do everything else. He gave alms, it says. They ascended to heaven and, and the Lord heard them. Cornelius was a man that was seeking God. He was, he was after God's heart, but he hadn't converted to Judaism. He was after God's heart. And Cornelius, God was working in his life. Now I want you to notice the same thing about Peter and Cornelius, that God was working in both of their lives and orchestrated this whole event for Cornelius to come to faith in Jesus. And, and by the way, this exchange between Peter and Cornelius is the longest exchange in the book of Acts. 
So what's that mean for us? That means we ought to pay special attention to it because Luke wanted us to really recognize what was happening between uh, Peter and Cornelius because it's representative of what the book of Acts is all about. The, the founding of the church is all about. So we got Cornelius coming on the scene. God speaks to him. Cornelius sends men to go after Peter because that's what the angel of the Lord tells him to do. And then we've got Peter. Now, I don't want you to think that Peter is just kind of an accessory in this story. This, this instance in Scripture is just as much about Peter's conversion as, as it is Cornelius's. God has deep work to do in Peter. Remember, where was Peter at the end of Acts chapter 9? He was lodging with this guy in Joppa named Simon who was a tanner. Now, let me remind you what a tanner was. A tanner was a man uh, that, was, that was always working with dead animals. Do you know what happens in Jewish culture when you work with dead animals? You're unclean. So this is a Jewish man, but he's perpetually unclean. And God has him providentially staying with this perpetually unclean man because he's got work to do in Peter's heart. He, he's got work to, to, to show him all of the areas in his life that he wants to uproot and redeem in his heart. So we've got this, let's kind of move on to Peter here. We've got this this exchange between Peter and with God. And how does that go? We kind of pick up in verse 9 here. I'm not going to read the whole thing because we've already looked at that, but I do want to, I want to show you a few things. So this, this sheet comes down. Peter, Peter falls into a trance. He's up on the rooftop praying at Simon the Tanner's house. And he falls into a trance or a deep sleep. Maybe it was hunger-induced. Maybe it was really hot and he just needed a nap. Maybe he didn't get a good night's sleep the night before. I don't know, but he's napping on the roof. He's falling into a trance. And God meets him and gives him this vision. And the vision is, is that this, this huge sheet comes from heaven. And it's got all of these different types of animals in that. And then Jesus says to Peter, Rise, Peter. Kill and eat. So what's he saying there? He's saying, Peter... Listen, all of these things, I'm saying that they're worthy of you eating. My, my son, you, you can have any of these. I'm, I'm opening up what it means to be free in Christ. I want you to, to see that. So the, the kosher dietary ceremonial laws, I'm, 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 those things are a thing of the past because my covenant is expanding like a rose and is including more of creation than it ever has. And Peter responds in a typical Peter fashion, doesn't he? And what does he say? By no means, Lord. It reminds us of how Peter responded back in the Gospels. He kind of put his foot in his mouth and, and he responds in this really self-righteous way. He says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is uncommon or unclean. Now what does this tell us about Peter? Because I think it's revealing uh, for some, some, some things that we can learn about ourselves too. Peter, when he gets this, this command to obey God, he looks to his self-righteousness for the power to do it. You see what he does there? He says, look, I've never done this before. I, I've, you, I, I don't think I can obey because my obedience is dependent upon my experience and I've been, I've been a kosher man. That's been my identity. And here you want to rip that away from me and make me just like everybody else? And God needs to press into him that Peter, my will for you is to be for the world. Peter, my, my, my gospel message, the grace that, that I've exhibited in Jesus is for the whole world and I want to use you in this, Peter. He's beginning to show him 
these things. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. His, his comfort and his security have to be in God, not his works, for him to be able to, to have the wherewithal to, to really go for this right here. To really obey God in this, for really to not make the distinction between clean and unclean any longer. Basically, what he's saying is Peter, you don't decide what's clean and what's unclean. Peter, you don't decide what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. Peter, you don't decide who's worthy and who's not worthy of my gospel. I decide that, Peter. That's up to me, Peter. And Cornelius was, was probably the furthest person away from being worthy of God's grace in Peter's mind. And God sends him to Cornelius. Not only is he a Gentile, but he's a Roman Gentile who lives in one of the most hedonistic cities in all of the Middle East. I'm sending you to him, Peter, because I'm doing a new thing in the world. We go into this exchange between Peter and Cornelius. And, uh, and basically what happens in this is God orchestrates the whole thing for them to be basically in the living room of Cornelius' house in Caesarea, looking at each other face to face. And Peter says, look, I just want you all to know it's unlawful for me to be here. And, and I already talked about what that meant. It really wasn't unlawful. It was just against this tradition and, and against this culture to be in the home of a Gentile. But Cornelius is so jacked up about what God's about to do. He's gathered everyone he knows and they're all in the living room just waiting for what God wants to reveal through Peter. And Peter was, Peter was probably a little bit unwilling to go there. He was a little resistant to go to Caesarea. But nevertheless, he goes and he obeys God for what is at hand and what God wants to do. And so they're sitting there in the living room waiting for what God's going to do. God has been orchestrating things in Peter's life. He's been orchestrating things in Cornelius' life to bring them to such a place as this. And anytime, friends, that anyone ever comes to faith in Jesus, God is doing the same thing. He's orchestrating the events in those that will share the Gospel, that will show you know, will demonstrate and proclaim the gospel. He's, he's working in that person's life. He's also, on the other end of things, preparing people to receive the gospel and working in their hearts. Now, here's, here's the question that I want you to consider as we go into the second part of the sermon here is, what would it be for you in that sheet that was dropped down? Or you say, hey, <laughs> anything but that, God. Or what would it... Who, who would be your Cornelius? Who, who is it that you have intentionally kind of shut out of your life and therefore the Gospel hasn't gone forth from your life to these type of people? Whether, whether they have a certain uh, socioeconomic uh, kind of class or whether they are a certain race. Who, who is that in your life? That's the thing I want you to consider as we look at what it means to steward Gospel privilege here. So really the big verse here that I'm going to expound on is, is Acts 10.15 where God says to Peter, what God has made clean, do not call common. It's Jesus that calls the game for Peter and decides the work that He wants to do and who He wants to work in. 
The privilege factor in this is that each redeemed image bearer of God has been entrusted with the Gospel. And they have an opportunity to steward that grace that God has given them. Now, So what does it mean to steward something? It implies that we've been entrusted with something that's of worth. And we get to kind of we get to, to choose how, those, how it's dispersed. Whether that's money, whether that's God's grace. And we choose that by how we live our lives and the decisions that we make. So there's a, a responsibility of Christians to be ambassadors of God. There's a responsibility to not just pursue reconciliation with God, but reconciliation with each other. And that's really easy to do with people that look and live like you. It's really hard to do with people who don't look and don't live like you. But God has called us to the world. So, I've heard this question before, and it's a valid question, and I want to talk about it for a second. Is racial reconciliation a Gospel issue? I've heard people ask that question before, thinking, okay, this passage right here is really about the salvation of a man that wasn't a Christian. You're right, it is about that. But it's also about the deep-seated and rooted nature of the hostility that we're going to look at that exists between the Jews and the Gentiles that was sinful. Absolutely sinful. Now, in our culture today, there is underlying hostility between different races as well. Some uh, is more pronounced. Some is more subtle. And we all have a bias in it whether we want to acknowledge it or not. None of us in here perfectly see each image bearer of God as perfect image bearers of God. We don't see with God's sight uh, perfectly. And Peter didn't do this either. This is the work that God was doing in his life as well. But the problem, and why this is a Gospel issue, is because what, what we do when we show bias against people that look and live differently than us, uh, is we are, we are making a, a, a validation statement of the worth of an individual. Now the problem with that is, is that only God has the ability and holiness to be able to do that. And this is why that Acts 10.15 passage is so crucial. What God has made clean, do not call common. So anytime an image bearer of God is seen as less than another image bearer of God, there is a distortion that has to be dealt with. So that's where I'm kind of going with this today. And the stewardship piece of this is that we get to know God. We have that honor and privilege that we can know God through Christ. What an honor that is. And because of that, He gives us this ministry of reconciliation to the world. So I want to read a couple passages that talk about this stewardship. One is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It will be up on the screen. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So there's something God's after in each steward of His Gospel. That we be found faithful to steward it well. Colossians 1.25-29 says this, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. I've been privileged and my job is to make the Word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to who? His saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What a privilege it is to know Him. 
Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Paul says this, look, this is what I've given my life to, the stewardship of the Gospel that He may be known so that I can present everyone full, fully mature in Christ. That is His hope. And he says, I toil with everything that's inside of me. The emphasis here is this, is that all of us who know Christ are rich. We are so filthy rich with God's love. We're filthy rich. We've got cattle on a thousand hills of the grace and riches of God inside of us. And the more that we see that, the more that we want to steward and give that. So when we think that we're less than, we think that God is insufficient and we can't really feel the fullness of His love, what we try to do is create a system where we can be above other people. And we isolate people in our hearts and our minds with these differences that we think give us identity. But it's only Jesus that gives us identity. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians as well, and this is about the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. Ephesians 2.14 and 16. For He Himself is our peace. That's key. Peace. Isn't that what we're all after? And, and peace in the Bible isn't just the absence of conflict. Because you can have the absence of conflict without being one. You can have the absence of conflict without experiencing this holistic shalom. Peace that, that, that transcends uh, not just circumstances, but also it, it transcends issues that are going on in our heart. You've met a person that is experiencing the peace of God that surpasses understanding. You've, you've probably experienced that some in your life as well. Where it doesn't matter what happens in your life, you're good to go because Jesus is enough. This is the peace that the Bible is talking about. And he says that peace, that peace is a person, it's Jesus who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. See, there's a residue of division in all of the world. And, and here's the deal, guys. Because you and I live in a specific place that Acts 17 says that God has predetermined. You don't live in Lawrenceville, Georgia or Metro Atlanta on accident. It wasn't because you just found a job here and moved here. It wasn't because you just grew up here. You live here on purpose. And according to Jeremiah 29, wherever God has placed us, we have a responsibility to seek the welfare of the place that God has put us. Listen to Jeremiah 29.7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. This is, this is God speaking to His people that were in exile in Babylon. And, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. In its welfare, you will find your welfare. So there's no such thing of us, as us saying, in Atlanta there's no racial problem that God wants me to, um, to, 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 to step into. When you move to Atlanta or you grew up in Atlanta, Atlanta's racial tension becomes our problem. 
As the church, it becomes our problem. It's not just a, oh, them down there, that's their issue. It becomes our problem because God tells us to seek the welfare of the city that He's called us to. Because in the welfare of the city that He's called us to, we find our welfare. And the last time I checked, we're all interested in our welfare. We're all interested in a safe place to live. We're all interested in peaceable relationships. We're all interested in joy. We're all interested in having the presence of God with us and the implications. So what's that mean for us? That He's made us one people and we're called to pursue that with everything inside of us. Now I know this can come across a little strong because we're all feeling a little bit kind of on the hook for this now. And, and I, what I want to do now as I close the sermon is I want to let you into my struggle with this. Um, and I, I'm, not, um, I'm not overlaying this on anyone else in the room. I just want to paint a vignette for what it's looked like for one man to struggle. To struggle um, with moving to a place that, that has tensions that, that I hadn't seen before. And then dealing with things that erupted in me that, that I hadn't experienced before and then being called to enter into the pain, being called to enter into the mess of all of that. So, what has gospel privilege led me to do? Well, when I moved into Atlanta, um, you always do um, kind of demographic work before you plant the church. And here's what I discovered about Lawrenceville in particular that it's 38% white, 35% black. 15% Latino and 12% Asian. That's the most diverse place that I've ever lived in my life. Many of you, I don't know if you know this or not, but Gwinnett County is one of the most diverse counties in the country. Um, there are more people moving in to Gwinnett County from other parts of the world than almost any other county in the country. I mean, it's, it's up there toward the top. So there's lots of opportunity to see differences here. So, so I began to do kind of my homework, okay? Uh, so as I stepped into this, I realized that there was an underlying tension in Atlanta, in particularly between the white and the black community. Um, now, I'm not, say, I'm not undermining other tensions uh, within the Asian community or the Latino community. I'm just saying what I've discovered between the tensions between the white and the black community. As I began to discover what was going on here, God has led me down this road. He's led me down this road of wanting to be more educated because I, uh, frankly, want to know my brothers and sisters in Christ that are African American more deeply. I want to be able to love them and encourage them more deeply, regardless if they're ever at New City Church or not. Because they're made in the image of God and they make up almost half of my city. I have a desire to know more of the story. And as I've been down this road, I've Three, three things have happened. Uh, I've, I've had a desire to be more educated about what's going on in my city, uh, which has produced an empathy that's been given to me by the Holy Spirit, which has produced an engagement for me to begin to walk this out in all of its uncomfortableness. I want to tell you a couple things just about Georgia and even, uh, even Atlanta that, that many people don't know. Uh, do you know how many counties the state of Georgia has? 159. So, uh, Georgia is the 21st uh, largest state, but it has the second most counties in all of the country. Only behind, God bless Texas. Texas has always got to be bigger, right? 
Do you know why it has so many counties? Was it just because that's just kind of how it worked out? Well, in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, there was a system of voting uh, after uh, slavery had been abolished called the county unit system. Now, in predominantly urban areas, more African Americans lived. So you know now that it's, that it's uh, one person, one vote. Well, there was a, a system that, that existed for almost 75 years called the county unit system where people, uh, different counties would get a certain number of votes. So it didn't matter how many people lived there, like uh, Fulton County got six votes. You know, Gwinnett County might get four votes, but it was in between six and two votes. So that system was set in place so that the more rural white areas of Georgia could control the votes, even though Georgia wasn't even... It, 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 was, it wasn't even like uh, you know, a, a landslide of white people versus black people. There was an injustice there where the African-American vote didn't count as much as the white vote did because most white folks lived in rural areas. So it wasn't until 1962 that they abolished this. And they said it's unconstitutional. Could you imagine just knowing, going to the voting booth and knowing, my vote doesn't mean anything. Could you imagine knowing that? Or how about this, up until, the, and this is what I'm about to share with you, uh, had me weeping in my office for about 35 minutes, 40 minutes this week. Up until 1987, Forsyth County was a sundown town, which meant that African Americans were not allowed in the county after dark. That existed for 75 years. There were, there were, some of you have lived here you lived here in 1987. You remember Forsyth County being like that. Forsyth County is 20, 20 minutes from here, you know? 30 minutes from here. And to, to think that that wouldn't have an effect on how whites and blacks relate in our city today is, is foolish to think that that wouldn't have an effect. That, hey, I moved into Atlanta after 1987, so I don't really have to deal with that. That's not the case at all. I mean, I watched an Oprah Winfrey interview that was absolutely disgusting. It was four minutes long, and I could only get through a couple minutes of it. Friends, we have an obligation to seek the welfare of our city. This isn't a political sermon, okay? It's not. This is an image of God being distorted sermon and the call for Christians to draw out the dignity that God has placed into each image bearer in His kingdom. We've got to get educated on why our community, why our city is the way that it is. This led me to empathy. This led me to this place of, of realizing, hey, I don't have very many black friends. I don't have very many African-American friends. And that's a problem. So I began to, to put myself in places where I could befriend more folks that don't look like me. And I have some rich and deep relationships with men who I've been able to sit down and they've told me the stories about what it was like to grow up in Atlanta in the 70s and the 80s and the 60s. And to hear the things that happened to them. And for me not to try to immediately absolve myself and to step out of the situation, but to just sit with them in the middle of the pain. There's something that God does as we sit together and we look at one another in the eye and we just, we just mourn together. We just lament together. My MC this past week talked about the fact that, you know, basically as a culture, we don't really know how to lament together. And one of the things that God has called the church to do is to be able to mourn and lament together when we experience loss that's been wreaked, that's wreaked havoc on our societies and our communities by the power of sin. There's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. 
There's a prophet in the Bible that was called the weeping prophet Jeremiah. So I, we just sit, and I, I sit with Reggie, I sit with Daryl, I sit with Leonce, and I hear their stories. And I don't try to fix it. I just try to love them. And you know what that leads me to? Engagement. That leads me to these places where, where man, I want to mentor these young men in my community. I, I want to engage more deeply. My, my friend Daryl uh, said it like this. I want to share this quote with you. Let's not seek to transcend the situation before we're transformed by it. So what does Daryl mean by that? Daryl means that many times whenever we, we get into these situations where it's uncomfortable and there's tension and there's unrest, we want to immediately transcend and get out of them at all costs. But what if instead as Christians, we sought the welfare of our city? We sought the welfare of image bearers of God in our city and we just sat in it and asked for God to do something in us that He couldn't do apart from this. And you know what happens as a byproduct of this? We're discovering what it means to be reconciled to God and we're also seeking reconciliation with one another. This is why the Apostle Paul and Jesus talk so much about what it means for the church, for the people of God to be one. What would it look like at New City Church if the only thing that could describe what God is doing here was the power of the Holy Spirit? What would that look like? What if, what if it wasn't you know, that we all just look the same or that we all live the same way, but it, what if it was the fact that the Holy Spirit was up to something and we were seeking uh, Him to lead us deeper into that? Gospel privilege, friends. I know this isn't an easy sermon to hear, okay? But we really can't get away from the racial implications of Acts chapter 10. And we really can't get away from the racial implications of the city of Atlanta that God has called us to. Gospel privilege draws us to injustice everywhere that image bearers of God are hurting. Every single place. God's heart is moving toward that. And God's heart in us moves toward that. So what would it look like to move deeper into that? And the, the invitation for us today is to, is to, for those of us that know Jesus and have a relationship with Him, is to walk deeper into that, that privilege of being a son or a daughter of God. And for those of you that are not yet Christ followers, is to receive the privilege of being called a son or a daughter through the work of Christ. Because He's abolished the hostility. He's, he's cast it as far as the east is from the west. He's given us peace because that is Jesus' name. No, we no longer have to make a point or a name in Jesus. We can humble ourselves. Just like Paul says in Philippians 2, we can humble ourselves. We can bow before King Jesus and say it's not about being right. It's not about being wrong. It's about being one in Christ. What would that look like for you this week? What would that look like for us as a church in this city? Because I deeply want to move into this. I want to take steps further into this. Steps further where, where it seems like it's messy and messy and messy, but really we're just discovering what already is present in our community. Let's move into that with the confidence that God is at work. Let's pray together. Our Father, God, you, You've killed the hostility that exists between different image bearers of You. And You've made one new man. And God, we're not seeking reconciliation with one another before reconciliation with You. We're just saying that You've called us to steward the mysteries of God in such a way that causes us to be reconciled to one another as well. That's the benefit of being Your people. 
that the only thing that we have to have in common is the fact that Jesus is Lord. And we need the power of the Holy Spirit to make that possible, to make that tangible, to give us that peace. So Father, would You do that work? Father, for those in here that that have been exploring Jesus, that have been asking the questions about who is Jesus, God, would they hear the Father heart of You inviting them to receive Jesus? Father, would You do that work this morning? Would You... Would You draw New City Church to a place of unity with one another? And to a place where as Jeremiah 29.7 says, we are desirous of seeking the welfare of this beautiful mosaic of people You've called us to in Gwinnett County. Jesus, we, we adore You. And we want to know You more deeply. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.